So today, August 6th, is the Feast of the Transfiguration. Today we remember and celebrate the story we just heard in the Gospel text, in which Jesus goes to a mountaintop with the inner circle of his disciples, begins to pray, and is suddenly transformed before them. His face begins to glow, his clothes become dazzling white, and Moses and Elijah descend and begin speaking with him. The whole mountaintop is engulfed by a cloud, which is a traditional symbol of the presence of God, and a voice proclaims from deep within the cloud, this is my son, my chosen, listen to him. It's a puzzling and beautiful story, but in the Western church, the Feast of the Transfiguration is not that big a deal. I don't know about you, but I don't have Transfiguration cupcakes waiting for me at home. I don't have a big party planned for tonight. But for our brothers and sisters in the Eastern Orthodox Church, which follows the early Christian traditions that developed in Constantinople and the East Mediterranean, this is very possibly the most theologically important day of the year. Side note, if you would ever like a very quick tour of church history to know the difference between the Eastern and Western churches, between Catholic and Protestant, Episcopalian and Presbyterian or Baptist or anything, um, you can ask Reverend Chris. Um, Or you can also join our Back to Basics class that we're looking forward to leading in October, which should be really fun. Anyway, in the Eastern Church, um, that part of the church that's distinguished by the giant beards um, that most of the clergy have, the transfiguration rivals the importance of Christmas and Easter. Maybe not in popular practice, but certainly in religious thought. A common Eastern criticism of the Christianity of the West is that we're too focused on the crucifixion and don't pay enough attention to the transfiguration. This is it, this is their big day, their big feast. And why is that? Well, in the West, when we read the story of the transfiguration, we tend to interpret it in our rational Western way, which is to say, we read the story and we think the point of it is the information it conveys about the identity of Jesus. Okay, we say, Moses and Elijah symbolize the law and the prophets, so their presence suggests that the whole Jewish tradition testifies that Jesus is Lord. The voice from the cloud tells us that Jesus is the Messiah, and we know that he's more than just a human Messiah because we see him glowing and glorified, an exalted Christ. And there's a, there are important things to reflect on that we gain from this interpretation, But Eastern theologians tell us that if we read this story just as a story that gives us information about who Jesus is, we miss the point. You're too rational, they say. You're being too rigid. This story needs to be understood with the mindset of a mystic. It's not a list of theological points. It's an experience. It was Jesus's experience on that mountaintop, and it can be ours if we wish as well. The Eastern tradition says that when God became human in Jesus, he joined himself with humanity 
forever. He fused his nature with human nature so that from then on out, human nature and divine nature were fused together. They were one. And so when the resurrected Jesus returned to heaven, human nature was literally taken up with him into the presence of God. Bear with me on this. So human nature goes up to heaven to be unified with God. And because I have human nature, and you have human nature, and you have human nature, each of us has it, there's a part of each of us that is fused with God and is taken up into the very being of God. And since that's true, there's a part of us that is always driven, always pulled toward unity with the divine, toward the sharing of the very being of God. Doesn't make any sense on a human level, but the idea is that God became human. God came down to be with us. And so one day we will come to be with God. God came to share our nature so that we could share God's nature. And so all of human life is thought of as the process of God drawing us closer and closer and closer until at our death we are finally fully incorporated into the being of God. And so salvation doesn't come from assenting to a list of beliefs. You know, believe this, 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 and this, and then you're in the clear. No, instead, being saved is giving yourself over to this process by which you're being drawn closer and closer, bit by bit, into total union with God. It's a delicate thing to talk about because Christianity doesn't teach that we become gods ourselves. We don't become God, rather we're incorporated into God. We retain our own identity, I stay Ginger, you stay Mimi. But over the course of our lives, we become, if we give ourselves over to it, more and more like Christ. More and more unified with God over time. We become more and more full of the spirit of God, governed more and more by that spirit and less and less by our own desires. And this doesn't happen just through our own willpower. We can't sort of grit our teeth and discipline ourselves into being more like Jesus. Rather, it comes through surrender. We become more like Christ when we give ourselves over to letting grace work through us like a balloon letting itself be inflated with air. And that takes a lot of listening to that still, small voice in our hearts. A lot of saying, okay, God, I'm letting go of my plans and letting you take over. St. Paul calls, us, calls it self-emptying, letting God be in control rather than ourselves, stepping aside so that God's love speaks and not my own anxiety. It's not easy, but they say that if we practice that stepping aside day after day, stepping aside again and again, year after year, if we surrender, if we really let go and let God, gradually we grow to be more and more like Jesus. We become what the tradition calls an altar Christus, another Christ, not because we're perfect, but because we are as available as we can be as flawed human beings to whatever God wants to use us for. 
That's what it means to be another Christ, to be as available to God as we could possibly be at every moment. The early church theologians said that being another Christ is like being an iron sword left in the fire. The sword is still iron. It has the same weight, the same sharpness, but now it glows and burns like fire. It's taken on the characteristics of the fire that surrounds us. In the same way, we humans don't cease to be human, but we can take on more and more of the characteristics of Christ. That's our goal, taking on more and more of the traits of the fire, becoming more and more like Jesus. And so the transfiguration is so important because that vision of Jesus on the mountain, his face and his clothes glowing, in that vision we see who we are trying to be. We see the spirit that we want to fill us and transform us into the likeness of Jesus. That's why the transfiguration is so important in the East. Yes, it shows us who Jesus is, but it also shows us who we can be if we're willing to let God work within us. So there we go. That's a lot of theology for before 11 a.m. But what it boils down to is a call to the work of faith. Not trying to be perfect, but surrendering to God. Stepping aside and letting God be in charge and trusting that those little moments of surrender add up to something in the end. That they are steps on the way to becoming bit by bit more like Christ until the end when we are unified with him forever. Amen.